return to 2 Peter. I'd like you to ask you to turn to 2 Peter so we can continue in our series through that very small book, kind of tucked away, feels like, in, toward the back of the Bible, next to Jude, uh, but before the book of Revelation. So as you turn there, uh, I think there are certain passages that are intended to protect us from a kind of religion, a brand of Christianity that sees or views the stories, the accounts that are recorded for us in Scripture as uh, tales, uh, really good legends, uh, great bedtime stories with moral qualities to them to remind us of how we're supposed to live, but uh, not necessarily true. In fact, it doesn't matter if there's historicity to what the Bible says, but what really matters is that it's encouraging to you. Uh, What really counts is that you feel better. Uh, When you go to many churches today, that is either how they teach the Bible or that's how they handle the Bible, when they don't take it rigorously. They don't ask you to turn to it. We're just going to kind of vaguely reference it and leave here with just some, some strong moral support and encouragement. Uh, but I think what you'll see today in this passage is that we don't want to take Christianity that way, that the Apostle Peter didn't want his, the churches in his day to take it that way because it's dangerous. And so turn with me to Second Peter. We're going to be right towards the end of chapter 1. We're going to get right into the beginning of chapter 2 today as well. Of course, these chapters, these numbers are put there after the fact just to help us find our way around. Peter didn't write it with these numbers, so there really is no chapter 2, honestly. But we're going to be 116 to 2-3 today. And what we'll see right off the top is Peter helping his readers understand that our hope Specifically in this passage, the hope of Christ's return, right? Because if Christ is kind of mythical, there's no return. Right? If, if, if the Jesus story is just kind of, maybe there was a guy who taught well, but you know, he didn't really rise from the dead, he didn't really walk on water, I mean, those are myths. Well, then his return is a myth. And if his return is a myth, you've got really no hope. And so he wants to protect them from that. And he says in verse 116, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that our hope in the power, the powerful return of Jesus Christ, is a hope that's not based on tales, but on testimonies. I was there, he's saying. And so if it was something we just made up, there's no power in his coming, there's no real power in an ex- expectation of a return, but they're just cleverly devised myths. And he's saying, no, it's not made up. It's based on eyewitness testimonies, and we were eyewitnesses, not just of a man walking around who had nice things to say, but we were there when he pulled back his robe and our eyes were blinded and we hear a voice from heaven saying, this is the one to follow, this is my son on that Mount of Transfiguration. You see that in verse 17. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, he says, in 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, 
And you're like, when did that happen? He says, yeah, when the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You're like, well, he said that at the baptism. Well, that's true. He says in verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking about, for those of you who've been around Christianity for a while, you've read through the Bible a little bit, that transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mountain before he approached the cross is demonstrating to a few disciples his absolute power and majesty that the one who's going to come in judgment, the one who's going to come and take over this world, I am he. And you can find that, you can mark it, read it, reflect on it later, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. They all cover it, where God says, this is my beloved son. And when you read those gospel accounts, Peter leaves this out, but I think it's implied, listen to him. <laughs> listen to him. Don't listen to the cleverly devised myths, because we don't follow a myth. We don't follow a legend. I was just curious, so I opened up my dictionary app. Uh, I don't know, it's dictionary.com. Here's the definition of a myth, okay? A traditional or legendary story, usually concerning some being or hero or event, with or without a determinable basis of fact or a natural explanation, especially one that is concerned with deities or demigods and explains some practice, rite, or phenomenon of nature. That's a mouthful. Well, what caught my attention was it says, I would have defined myth has no basis in fact. The definition for myth is with or without a determinable basis of fact. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Was there really an Achilles? Maybe. Who knows? It doesn't matter. What matters is you understand the, the moral of the story that this strong Achilles had the weakness in the heel when the arrow shot him by Paris or whoever that was, right? Like that's the moral of the story. It doesn't matter if this actually happened. What matters is what it teaches you. And so myths may or may not have happened. And what you'll often hear is Christians, supposed Christians, churches, preachers, teachers, professors, they won't tell you it didn't happen. They'll tell you it doesn't matter whether it happened or didn't happen. And what Peter's telling you is, no, these are not myths. And the difference, not that Peter had access to dictionary.com, but I think it, the, today's definition matches the de definition it's always had. That with myths, it doesn't matter whether it's rooted in fact but Peter's argument is, of course it matters that it's rooted in fact, because that's what makes it not a myth. So if you're in here today and you grew up with Christianity, it's like a cultural Christianity, and the stories of Jesus and the apostles, the story of the Old Testament heroes of the faith just kind of went alongside Jack and the Beanstalk and stories of Hector of Troy, that's a problem. That's a problem. And those of you getting ready to go to university, get ready to hear that. Get ready to be laughed at for going, Hector of Troy, probably not true. Jack and the Beanstalk, pretty sure that didn't happen. Jesus walking on water, that happened. That's silly, they'll tell you. You say, no, not a myth. Based in testimony. And I know it. Because we were there on the mountain, this Jesus who confirmed the Old Testament, who taught the Old Testament, believed the Old Testament to be true, and inspired what's being written now, this Jesus was transfigured before our eyes. This is not just a, some dude <laughs> teaching. This is the Son of God himself. 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now you might, if you're like me, you might go, well, good for you, Peter. You were there on the mountain. I didn't see it. I, like, I wasn't there. And Peter's writing to an audience that back then, I guess, if they had the resources to do it, they could go track Peter down and interrogate him. Wait, 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 what mountain? When? What time? I mean, if he's an eyewitness, he can be interrogated, but we don't have that option. So he brings in something that's a little more universal and a little more time-tested. And he says that Scripture is another source of confirmation. It says in verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Let's just pause there a second. He says this prophetic word, I think mainly he's speaking of the Old Testament there, but if you just stay in this letter and go to chapter 3, verse 16, he refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. Right? People, false teachers are twisting Paul's letters just like they do other Scripture. So New Testament counts here if it's the apostolic witness. But he says that Scripture is now more fully confirmed. Scripture is, has its own confirmations, right? But now that Jesus approves it, now that Jesus teaches it, now that Jesus tells us it's authoritative, and Jesus in his own works proves that he is who he said he is, and if that's how Jesus views the Old Testament, that's how we should view the Old Testament. That's true. And so now it's more fully confirmed. It's not like they didn't believe the Old Testament before Jesus came on the scene, but it's now more fully confirmed, this prophetic word. And he tells us it's this, to this prophetic word that you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. There's lots to unpack there, and we can't unpack all of it, but we'll just kind of I'll pick my spots, and some more of this will be unpacked in our growth groups. He says, we have this prophetic word, it's fully confirmed, there's eyewitnesses, and this is what we need to pay attention to. And basically the argument is, if it's myths, it's not much of a lamp. But if it's truth, then it will be your guidance through this life. And as soon as we lose the objective nature of truth, that there's not something that I get to weigh in on as my opinion and just make up as we go along, as a church, we don't just devise doctrinal statements like, you know what, this year, let's just, let's just say this is true. But we say, turn to Second Peter. What does it say? Let's do that. There's an objective standard outside of ourselves that tells us what to believe. We don't impose it on Scripture and create what to believe. And for some of you, you're like, yeah, I know. And it's like, have you been out there? <laughs> this is the lunacy. Now, I understand outside of churches, for people to treat the Bible as myths. But I'm talking about preachers to treat the Bible as a myth. It's a dangerous slope. We try to dodge the scoffing of a watching world when they think, did Jesus walk on water, man? You really believe Jesus walked on water? You believe Noah got all these animals into a boat? Are you serious? You believe there's a flood? 
well, how do I engage? How do I not look dumb? How do I pursue an education and get degrees under people that are like this and not just look like a laughingstock? Well, maybe just say, well, what I believe is what the moral of the story is. Oh, yeah, well, we like that too. You're losing it. And you're not paying attention to it the way you should be paying attention to it because he wants us to pay attention to it not as cleverly devised myths, but as eyewitness testimony. Do you really believe that these disciples were up on a mountain and Jesus is transforming before them and uh, Moses and Elijah appear and God from heaven is talking? Well, if you don't believe that, then you're throwing out the whole thing in Peter's view. Now you're clinging to cleverly devised myths. And notice that he calls them cleverly devised. It's not going to be Jack and the Beanstalk, right? That's pretty quickly you can get to. I mean, probably when you were four, you were probably like, I don't know if that, there's actually a Beanstalk that goes up to some giant's palace. and it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But that wouldn't be clever. But they're clever. They're educated. They have PhDs. They publish. They write. They teach. They travel the world. They know the Greek. They know the Hebrew. These pastors have weight. These pastors aren't going to tell you, I'm going to undo everything you learned when you were little. But with a smile and over time, they have cleverly devised sermons that rob you of a high view of Scripture. And he says that you won't have a lamp if you view it that way. But to pay attention to this prophetic word as truth, as not based on tales, but based on testimony, if that's your view of Scripture, then Scripture will function for you as a lamp in this darkness. And so as much as we talk about politics and things like that, we don't turn to a party to be our lamp. We don't turn to a candidate to be our lamp. The lamp in the darkness is God's truth. It's God's very word. Without that, we don't have anything but opinions and feelings and subjective experiences no, we need something objective. We need something that's truth so that in this dark place, we have this lamp shining. Until when? Well, it leads us in our way until the day dawns, that day of judgment. He talked about in verse 16, that coming, that powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture will guide you in darkness until that day when the morning star himself comes on the scene and Scripture takes a back seat to the very subject of Scripture, Jesus Christ himself. And I love how he makes it an interior experience, not just objectively viewing this phenomenon of Jesus Christ's return, but something welling up inside your heart as that moment comes. And even now, we yearn and long for that moment. And our way through this dark place, our way through the darkness, is a lamp shining, which is the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105, what is God's word like? It is like a lamp. Because without that lamp, you won't see your own feet on the path. But if you want to find your way through the darkness, you cling to God's word not on your shelf and not as cool stories, but truth. Truth itself. In point of fact, maybe some of us are much more fascinated with fiction novels than God's own truth. So that even if God's word was full of myths, 
we still would prefer secular fiction. And he's saying, it not only is it better than any fiction you might read, it's not fiction. <laughs> and that makes it count. That makes it count. It makes it matter. It's what keeps us until that day. If you're going to hang in there and not be overwhelmed and overcome by this darkness, you have to be a student of Scripture. If you're not going to sit in the seat of scoffers, stand with the wicked, you're going to be blessed of God, Psalm 1. You delight in the law of the Lord and you meditate on it day and night. It's an intentional meditation. It's not like closing your eyes, crossing your legs and saying, Om. That's a different kind of meditation. But the Hebrew word there in Psalm 1 for meditation is a, it's an intentional, it's communicative. It's like you're talking it out loud with somebody. So we need to get into God's word because it's our lamp. And what's the value of a lamp? Well, it keeps you from getting lost. That's the value of a lamp. It keeps you from getting lost. So he explains to us that is this reason why we need to pay attention. We need to listen. We need to take notes. We need to study. We need to know it. It's God's word. So if it's not a myth, and it is true, then in what ways can we lend our ears to what God is saying? We pay attention to it. Now there's this weird line, maybe some of you who are reading in a different translation heard me read it out loud, and you're wondering, wait, that sounds different. Verse 20, the ESV says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's translated that way by the ESV, the HCSB, the NKJV, the NRSV. Lots of translations and lots of really great commentators translate it that way. Others, the NIV, NLT, NET, would say something like, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. What's the difference? I don't think the difference is great, but I think it's worth noting really quickly. He says, if you take the ESV reading, what they're saying is, and it can go either way grammatically, but it's ESV way of reading it, no prophecy of Scripture is produced or comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, Paul, Peter is saying, the apostles know how to interpret the prophecy of Scripture, and people don't get to just interpret it any way they want. It doesn't just get produced by your own interpretation. It's authorized by the apostolic interpretation. But if you're holding an NIV in your lap and it says something like, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, what that means is that Peter is saying, when the prophets wrote Scripture, God gave them a dream, God gave them a revelation, and they, in a sense, interpreted that revelation to put it down in Scripture, that they didn't do that interpretation by their own thoughts and feelings. They did it in an objective way. That's what the dream means. That's what I'm writing down. That's what's on the tablet. That's what I'm putting on the paper, right? It's what God has given, and the prophets didn't mangle it, distort it, or twist it to put down whatever they felt like putting down. I don't think we have to make a decision. I lean toward the second one, even though I usually go with uh, those other translations that I cited. I think in this case, that second one fits the context more but it doesn't change the meaning of the text. Paul, Peter's point is 
God didn't just give options to people to write down and like, yeah, write whatever you feel like as long as it's encouraging to people. Right? No, write this. And it might be in your own style, your own language, you know, your own personality comes through in the way you wrote it. Peter doesn't write the same way as Paul, and that's fine. But what's put down there is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 is breathed out by God and inscripturated for our prophet. And Peter's saying they didn't just like do it willy-nilly. They wrote it down carefully, and then we interpret it according to that authoritative, objective truth that God is actually communicating something. Imagine you were a parent, and everything you, every command you gave to your child can be interpreted three or four ways. And then you get mad at them for getting it wrong, right? Like, clear, be clear in what you want. Don't be vague, because then you can't hold them to it. So God doesn't hold us to a standard that's vague, right? And up to people's interpretations, up to the interpretations of the prophets that wrote it, up to the interpretations of the professors in school that teach it, neither is true. He's saying, no, it was written down not according to just people's interpretations, whether it's ours today or the prophets then who wrote it down. Why? Because verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. And they didn't just speak from God like they heard God in the past and then they're saying it in the future, but even in their speaking of it, they're born along, they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the primary verses to explain to anyone what we mean by inspiration, that Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. And some will explain to you that the verb there, carried along, is the same word that's used when a gust of wind pushes the sails of a ship and moves the ship along the sea. This is how Scripture was written. They didn't just hear a voice and they're trying to remember it the next day. Even as they're writing it down, God is superintending what they're writing down so that what you have in your lap, God wanted you to see that there. Subjective truth. And if we lose the doctrine of inspiration, if we water it down, if we get loose with our explanation of its truthfulness, inerrancy, then we start down a path where that lamp starts to flicker. And before you know it, you don't know what path you're on anymore. Or worse, you will be convinced by others that you're on the right path and these super fundamental conservative Christians that their heads are still stuck in the sand, they haven't read that new dissertation that's come out from some European country, some super smart dude. Have you, had you just been enlightened, you would get your head out of the sand and be a little more progressive in your Christianity. That line of thinking will convince you you're on the right path. And you think you're holding a lamp and you're just joining darkness. It's dangerous and it counts. Why do we preach longer than 20 minutes? Why do we not just jump into communion? Why do we pull out scripture? Why do we read scripture? Why do we try to use songs that echo scripture? Why do we read scripture again when we're in our Bible studies? Don't, don't we do other things? Everything has to flow out of this love for truth. Because if we have a lamp shining in, in the darkness, it's because of the Word of God, not just doing churchy things. And so it needs to be central to our church, and not just to our church, but central to our lives. If we're teaching our children more about how to navigate the political landscape than we do about catechizing them in the, truth, the basic truths of Scripture, we're failing our kids. 
So it's returning to God's word. It's being a student of it and not making excuses for feeling like maybe it's kind of nerdy or I don't really read well. If you don't read anything else, read the word of God because it's your lamp. And so he helps us to understand the real, what's really at stake, especially when he moves into the first three verses of chapter 2. And look what he says there. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people. So you had the prophets that were carried along by the Spirit. You had people that claimed to be like them, but they weren't carried along by the Spirit. They were false prophets. They arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Man, those are weighty, those are weighty words. And we might quickly just think, well, that's not really that relevant to me because I'm not really exposed to false prophets. Notice how he pushes it into the future. False prophets also arose among the people, past tense, just as there will be future tense. And I don't think he just means whoever finds this letter first, but whoever finds this letter ever. As we covered a couple weeks ago, Peter is pushing into the future of the church, and all those who will read his words are going to be continually reminded of the things that he's putting down. And one of those continual reminders is false prophets will not go away. There's false prophets then, there are false prophets now, there'll be false prophets tomorrow. And they are not, you won't find them at falseprophets.com, right? They, they don't publish their books by false prophet press. Right? They're not going to tell you they're a false prophet. How can you possibly identify a false prophet? I don't want you to just ask CFC to put out a list I need you to be discerning. So when you turn on that radio station, when you turn on that TV, when you go with your cousin to their favorite church, look at this great church I invite. Oh, great, let's go check it out. You need to be a discerning listener and go, that's not, a, that's not the lamp. That's something else. Because they're going to be present. They're false teachers. And they don't do it overtly. Look what it says in verse 1. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. They're not going to come in like, hey, I've got this really new doctrine. Let's throw out the old doctrine and let's introduce this. No, it's going to be sneakier than that. It's going to be backdoor. It's going to be from the side. It's, it's going to be like one day you realize, wait a minute, where did, we, where did we turn here? And this is happening in churches. This is happening in seminaries. This is happening in schools. This is happening in homes. Sneaky little things that don't seem that big a deal at first. And over time, they become destructive. And it says this, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So I'm going to ask you for permission. I'm going to punt a heavy theological issue for like two weeks from now. I'm just going to preview it now, and then in two weeks, Peter's going to return to the theme. We'll unpack it then, because otherwise, you know, this will be a huge section. But what does that mean? They're false teachers. They're doomed for destruction. But Jesus bought them. Are they Christian or are they not Christian? Now, those of you who've heard my preaching long enough, you probably have surmised 
that I don't believe that you can be saved and then unsave yourself. And the reason why I don't believe that, even though I grew up believing that, is because of the sheer amount of verses, and not just the sheer amount of verses, but the clarity of them, that specifically say, in my opinion, that that is not true. And I don't think we even have to leave Second Peter for it. We talked about that a little bit in chapter 1. I think oftentimes what Scripture does is turns the camera from the inside of the person's heart or moves the camera to the outside of the person. When the camera, like if it's shooting a movie, if Scripture's shooting a movie and talking about somebody and the camera moves to the interior of someone's heart, it's always God's action. A person is dead, God raises them. A person is dead, God makes them alive. A person is dead, God regenerates them. That's what's happening inside them. But phenomenologically, in other words, the camera comes out how it's viewed from humans. The person looks saved, they're baptized, they come to church, they read scripture, they participate in the service, maybe they guest preach once in a while. These people are involved, they're teachers. They're, they're not just like random help in the church. These are people in the church with a voice, and they sound like they know more scripture than other people. And then suddenly one day, they're in the darkness. And so when Peter says, even though Jesus bought them, I think, even though they didn't use quotes in the Koine Greek, I think he could have put it in quotes, right? Like if he were writing it today, like even though Jesus bought them, in other words, it looks to us like they were bought. And if that weren't true, there'd be never any need for church discipline, would there? If everybody just had a glowing sign on their head that I'm truly in, and other people said, I'm in, but the sign isn't there on their head, there'd be no need for discernment. Matthew 18 would be like unnecessary. You know, all that prayerful discernment to determine whether someone's really a brother, what's the discernment for? Glowing sign, right? So scripture sometimes has the camera on the outside going, whoa, we thought they were in. We thought they were purchased. We thought they were truly Christian. But Jesus says, if you deny me, I will deny you. And what do these people do? They deny the master. So I don't think Peter can possibly believe that they're actually in. I probably went further into that than I will, but we'll revisit that again in a couple of weeks because we're going to get... If you read ahead to the next couple paragraphs, you, your eyes might start crossing or you get really excited about the next couple of Sundays. Some weird stuff. But here, I think the simple point is, for all intents and purposes, these are people who claim the master bought them. We probably affirmed it. They may have even had hands laid on them. And if your heart has ever broken because one of your favorite authors, one of your favorite pastors that was so solid, they taught you so much about the faith, and now they're total atheists. If your heart has ever been broken by that reality, you understand what Peter's getting at here. But they aren't going to make it. Whichever view you take, they're not going to make it because they bring upon themselves swift destruction I think what that means is when Jesus comes, that destruction is going to be swift. It may not be right now, but when Jesus comes in power, it's going to be swift. It's not like a battle. It's not a tug of war with Jesus. Psalm 2 is bang. The nations rage and they're toast. So that's the destruction that they're going to be facing. But not just the false teachers. Look at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, not just among themselves, but the people that follow these people. 
the people that buy into those things, the people go, man, I'm not learning that at church. This really gets me jacked. I didn't want to read the Bible before, but if this is true, then I'll start getting into this teaching, and you start moving toward those false teachings, and what happens is you follow in the implications of those teachings. Now, it's not always this implication, but for them, he says some of the implications is a sensual lifestyle, because of them, the way the truth is blasphemed just before that, they're following in their sensuality. Or it can show up as greed, verse 3. And their greed, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, my heart is grieved by how often sex, sensuality, sexual misbehavior derails ministers. And then you look back at their body of teaching and you're like, what is this? was that real or like, what was going on there? And so it shouldn't be that foreign to us to see that sensuality is going to be mixed in. If you get to do what you want, teach what you want, and twist scripture, why wouldn't you just excuse certain behaviors you want to do? And just as often, we see pastors, ministers twisting the word of God for money. Probably don't need a ton of explanation there. But if you teach what itching ears want to hear, those people are going to put money in the plate of the false teacher, not in the plates of the pastor who's like, whoa, 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 don't approach the table yet. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear here. Take it home. Take it to go. No fencing of a table, just whenever you feel like it. We'll just deliver it. Or just uh, if you're live streaming, you know, open your fridge, and if there's Twinkies there, just take whatever. Like communion doesn't even mean anything anymore. But if if it's what people want to hear, they'll gravitate toward it because of the itching ears. Preaching is supposed to sting sometimes because as we carry some remnants of darkness in us and light exposes it, yeah, it hurts your eyes. But you'll come out better on the other side of it. And so he's not just talking about false teachers, but he's talking about the danger that false teachers pose On the church, they don't just bring destruction upon themselves in verse 1, but also for those who follow in their sensuality and blaspheme the truth because of it. Again, in a secret way, these people aren't going to stand up, I blaspheme the truth, but it's sneaky. It's clever, verse 16. It's often greedy, verse 3. And it's exploitative. They exploit people. Sometimes I meet Christians and they're starting to wake up from the bad teaching that they're getting in their, their church and they, then they start, like, man, we built that extra wing because of my donations. I spent hours upon hours helping them in such and such ministry and all this time I was building this nonsense. I like, it hurts. That hurts. But it shouldn't be really news to us. He's laying it out here that this is going to happen and it's not always going to look like the bad guys. It's going to look like the good guys and within the supposed good guys, sometimes greed seeps in, sensuality seeps in, and people that we previously saw as heroes of today's uh, ministry, Christian ministry, turn out to be those who deny their master. They will see a swift judgment, and so will those who follow them, who follow their false words, who are exploited by their false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, 
and their destruction is not asleep. The destruction is going to happen. And what's scary here is those who exploit with false words, they know what they're doing. But people who are exploited by false words may not know what they're doing, but they're still not excused. In other words, there's people that are duped and deceived, and God doesn't go, I know, I'll punish the the false teachers. I realize you didn't realize that was false. I'll save you. No, they share in the destruction because they shared in the blasphemy. This is why it's so important for you to be a student of Scripture. So when we stand up here and say, hey, turn to the Bible, turn to the Bible. I love that some of you get ahead of it. And when Erica sends out that bulletin, you check the text and you're in it already. That's awesome. We want to be students of Scripture, not just dependent on some teachers, but to be able to discern. I want you to be able to discern when I get it wrong. If I, what if I get it wrong? I don't want you to be like, oh, I, I need you to pull me aside and go, hey, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Can you explain that to me? And I'm, I'm never offended by that. I'm encouraged by that. We've got Bereans up in here, you know, people that are checked Scripture for themselves. And don't just walk around saying, well, my pastor says, but have their own access to their own translation, their Scripture. They take notes, they study, they rehearse it, they meditate on it, they get together, discuss it. That's the kind of church that sees God's Word as a lamp shining in a dark place. So that even the things that are snuck into the church secretly or sneakily or cleverly, we can catch it. We're allergic to that stuff. I recognize that's not the voice of the shepherd. You know how I know? Because I spend time with the voice of the shepherd. That's how you know. So if we're not going to get lost, if we're not going to be deceived, we need to study Scripture, understand Scripture, and understand that heresies are not something to be trifled with. We don't want to go, what does it really matter if we fudge on the Trinity? That doesn't really affect my day-to-day life. Doctrine is not based on what affects your Monday. If God's Word says that the Holy Spirit is God, we don't get to go, well, I'm not sure how that impacts my job tomorrow. Irrelevant. What does God's Word say? And if we only pay attention to the things that feel relevant to us, that's where heresy gets snuck in. It'll sneak in on the pieces of doctrine that you've not paid attention to because it didn't feel relevant to you. So we want to take Scripture for what it says, not for how it's relevant to my life, so that when we're in our Bible studies, and your growth group leaders will tell you this, we don't crack Scripture open and start with, what do you got from me, God? We open Scripture and we start with, who are you, God? What does this say about you? Before I start asking, what does this say about me? God is the focus, God is the center, and our study of Scripture has to be Godward, not inward first. That's how we dodge destructive heresies. Jesus Christ is protecting for himself a people that will be ready for that day of judgment. You're ready for that day of judgment, not because you study Scripture so much, right? but because of what we talked about with communion. You've trusted Christ for his spilled blood and his broken body to get you adopted into this family. But how do you know you're adopted? Well, one of those signs is you don't get duped by false teaching. A Christian adds and supplements to their faith, virtue, 
brotherly affection, knowledge. And it's not knowledge out there, degrees that you can accumulate. It's scripture. That lamp shining in a dark place. So I want to encourage you, you might feel like, man, I went to growth group once and people are quoting scripture. They have scripture memorized. They're talking about authors I never read before. I've experienced that too at every point in my life. And by God's grace, what I find myself doing is leaning into those kind of people, not moving away from them. If you're always around people that you, you, you know what they know or more, you'll never be taught. But if you can get around people that you know some stuff, but they know some stuff you don't know, you're gaining knowledge and access to God's word in a fresh way, in a new way, a challenging way. And that's what we try to do here at church in our discipleships and our growth groups and on Sunday mornings. Let's challenge each other with God's word so that we don't just see doctrine as a seminary thing, but as a thing that we're supposed to hold to because that's what lamp, the lampness of the Bible is, truth from error. So we can be discerning when we hear the error. Let's pray together. Father, as we close in this song, we pray that you would allow our hearts and minds to uh, be reminded, as Peter says, of the things that we need to be doing and focusing on, uh, that in our homes, in our daily lives, our, our habits uh, would be grounded in those primary habits of prayer and meditating on your word. We pray that we would grow in our delight of it. Some of us here might not feel like we delight in it, but we want to grow in it, Lord. And so now as we stand, as we sing, we pray that you would allow something to well up in our hearts that, that prompts a greater intentionality in studying Scripture and learning it together in community. And I, Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect our church from cleverly devised myths, to protect our people from destructive heresies. Not because we're smart, but by your grace, Lord, that we stand on your word and nothing else. We ask it in Jesus' name.